Hey, Rockheads, it's time for NDC Oslo again, June 15th through 19th in Oslo, Norway. Richard and I will be there, of course, as well as all your favorite speakers. World-class stuff here, folks. NDC-Oslo.com. We'll see you there. .NET Rocks, episode 1115. Recorded Saturday, March 14th, 2015. Hey, how you doing? It's Carl and Richard. Hey, Richard. Hey, buddy. How you doing? Ah, uh, you know, doing the thing with the stuff, and uh, and it's always a rush to finally get the last bits and pieces. Trying to make sure I'm not sitting on any one biased view, so my head is stuffed full of space power right now. So you ready to get it out? I'm ready to get it out. <laughs> All right. Well, first, before we do that, I've got a better know framework for you. Awesome. <laughs> All right, buddy, what do you got? You might be able to figure out what this is from the URL, but it's tinyurl.com slash Eagle Dubai Cam. Eagle Dubai Cam, D-U-B-A-I. They put a, a cam on a on an eagle? And launched him from the tallest building in the world. Wow. Lucky you could fly that high. I believe it's pronounced the Burj Khalifa. Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's almost a it's almost a kilometer high that thing. Yeah, so it's pretty amazing, and there's a video right there. That's it, awesome. They strapped a GoPro or something to the back of the eagle and set him free from the world's tallest building, <laughs> and he just sailed down, no problem. It's one of those things that you just you know you're sitting around with your buddies or you're in a bar or something. And you just pull it up and say, "Hey, look at this," and you see the <laughs> eagle's head twitching, and then the world moving in the background. It's like whoa yeah that's it's very geeky but cool and even though i mean we know uh gopros as lightweight cameras birds are so light yeah that it's it's still a substantial amount of their weight yeah he's probably thinking what's this damn thing on my back <laughs> yeah probably <laughs> i guess that's fair oh too funny yeah well that's a cool find dude yeah that's what i got that's cool and geeky i love it Who's talking to us? I grabbed a comment off of show 968, and that's the geek out we did with Uncle Bob when we were talking about interstellar space flight. Oh, that's cool. Which was really, you know, just the bar conversation we were having anyway. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and and Mark DeWalls, and this is a while ago that he wrote this comment, but it's and it's lengthy, but I thought it was worthwhile. Uh, he says, uh, here's a couple of things to think about. Anything we do today, we'll probably be better at tomorrow. Yeah. The first few groups of people that we would send to another star are going to be overtaken by those that leave after because we will steadily or in huge jumps improve the speed of propulsion over time. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like getting a cell phone. You may get a 1020 now, but, you know, there's always a cooler phone down the pipeline. Right. But I don't, you know, I don't know if I necessarily subscribe to that. There's a breakthrough, right? Like, and science fiction has written about this all the time is you go and accelerate a spacecraft to substantial sublight speed, and then you come up with warp drive. So you go pick those guys up. Hmm. And if your sublight speeds, of course, to get to another solar system is to literally be flying for many years. Right. You know, arguably, and again, lots of science fiction written about generation ships. The people on the ship aren't going to make it. They're going to die before that. Yep. And they make babies and train them up. Imagine being born into a spacecraft. It's no. crazy to think about. No, it is crazy to think about. 
And we worry about doing interstellar engines, but I would suggest this is not the main problem. There are tons of other infrastructure problems we need to tackle first in our, in our solar system to support the creation of interstellar ships. Absolutely. Uh, including mining, the transportation within the solar system, creating a backbone of cultures that actually want to go out of the solar system. I think that's pretty easy. There's people who want to go one way to Mars <laughs> yeah. for a TV show. Right. We will always have people. I have a feeling once we actually have all the infrastructure work uh, and the pressure to be first, uh, the materials will probably make this much easier to do. And I know it's an interesting thought. I totally subscribe to the idea that we will be spending a lot of time in the solar system and actually being able to travel in the solar system routinely before we can really grapple with the stars in yeah. any ways. Yeah. And, but he, you know, Mark goes on to say it's going to be a several hundred years at least. No. You know, Moore's law sort of dictates to us this stuff continues to accelerate. Yeah. So the the real debate is whether we'll really be working within the st- the solar system before we come across something like warping space. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's also my view that we are looking from a very Earth-centric cultural viewpoint yeah. when we discuss how long the trip would be. Well, there's a good reason for that. <laughs> We're all from the Earth. We are here. Yeah. But would generations of humans that had been born in space, say around the asteroid belt, which is really not saying anything, the belt is pretty diverse, maybe it's just series, but I get you, the idea of people born in space, would they not see a, would they have any problem with doing those kinds of trips or thinking multi-generationally like that? I don't know, it's, at least you see, you know, would you have a, would you have a series, uh, centric view of the world why would i leave this asteroid hmm. right or europa now they're talking about ganymede having oh, yeah. liquid water on it liquid right? water, like, salt ocean underneath the uh, surface of ice yeah. there so although other than the radiation problem which is catastrophic <laughs> yeah um you know we could put colonies there you know, like what would those people be like wouldn't they just be eccentric on those new bodies as they would be as we are on earth you know reality dictates something very not nice which is you know, the magnetic field of the Earth protects us in so many ways. The atmosphere protects us in so many ways. Space is dangerous. It, uh, yeah. It's dangerous. If you're not getting fried by radiation, you're getting pelted with rocks. <laughs> and they're going at thousands, tens of thousands of miles an hour. And the, and the radiation belts, the, 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 uh, the energy belt around the Earth is unusually large. It's, I've read some really interesting pieces that talk about why our field is so strong and maybe it's a prerequisite for developing life Mm. and you know i've certainly been reading since we did the show on mars we're talking about all the problems that curiosity detected right been reading about active radiation protection what does it take to actually build a strong field to protect us from that kind of high energy radiation right and and one of the reasons i've been doing all this and i we've never talked about this on the geek out yet is i started that google moderator site yes and uh, actually, let me close out Mark, and then we should do that. Because, Mark, thank you very much for your comment. Obviously, there's, there's lots of debate going on here, and I appreciate your area of thinking. I think stuff's sometimes are going to be shorter, things some things are going to be longer. There's certainly lots of work before we worry about flying to the stars. And I'd love to send you a .NET Rocks mug, so we'll be in touch. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .netrocks.com or on any of our mobile apps, because we've got them for iOS, Android, Windows Phone 7 and 8, and Windows 8. Okay, where do we start? Let's start with the Google Moderator site. Okay. I don't know what... Uh, I think I was in Amsterdam or something, and I've, I've been looking for a way to sort of collect opinions. I've just been doing the geek outs I want to do. Right. And I wanted to try and collect opinions, and I found this site. 
I found this service. Google moderators had it forever. It's yeah. been around for a long time. And it's really meant for, so you're going to do a talk at a conference. What talk should you do and what areas of that topic should you focus on? Right. And so you can get people to suggest elements of it, vote them up and down, and even ask questions around them. So I created one for the geek outs and I entered a handful of geek out topics, um, including this one, space based power. Mm-hmm. And then let people know it was there and a whole bunch of people voted and added a few more and I added a few more. And now I think we're up to 25, 27. Yep. From, you know, 140 something people have voted. Great suggestions too. Oh yeah, my some, God. Yeah. Really interesting ones. Um, a few have clearly bubbled to the top. Uh, quantum computing is way out in the lead, which I'm dreading to some degree because explaining quantum entanglement is difficult. Right. Um, the manned mission to Mars, which I added late, also high on the list. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, you know, going to go right into some of the stuff we're talking about here. Uh, Paul Shrum's suggestion on the state of the art around artificial intelligence right up there. Yep. Um, Moore's Law, beyond the topic I've been working on for a while and will probably do next month because next month happens to be the 50th anniversary of Gordon Moore writing the original paper that will become Moore's Law. So I've been, ever since our debate, my argument with Rocky about was Moore's Law dead, I'm like, I got to put together the notes for this to think right. about where Moore's Law go and where's beyond that. That was one of the most interesting conversations you guys have ever had. <laughs> and it's not over. Yeah. And now that he's survived his surgery, and I hope you're getting better, Rocky, right. we're going to go back at it again, I guarantee you. Uh, next generation aircraft and engines, one of my favorite subjects, yep. right up there. And Space Space Power's there, Large Hadron Collider, it goes on. Good. Well, I can't wait. I'll provide the link in the show. So you, we were always looking for more votes. More topics keep getting added. You can go back and vote for them again. The ranking system moderator does is kind of odd, but uh, we'll figure it out. And I may not I'll do them all in this order, but as I get them done, I'll remove them. And, well, you know, your topic will get to the top, I promise. I need to add a music theory 101 and uh, music in programming as well. Yeah, and and earlier this week we were talking about doing one on drones, and I don't have a drone one on here, so right, you know that's another thing that can be added. There's, there's lots more subjects. It's just to put more time into it. Yep. But let's get to it. Yeah, let's get to it. All right. Space-based power means generating power in space, using power in space, all of the above. What does it mean? Well, we always do generate power in space, right? I mean, obviously, if you're going to put a spacecraft up there, it needs electricity in one form or another. Mm-hmm. Um, most people think in terms of solar panels, although that's not the only way. Mm-hmm. For example, the entire moon mission, they didn't use solar panels at all. They used fuel cells for everything. Hydrogen. Yeah, they Well, because they were using hydrogen-oxygen power plants, right, for their engines. Right. They were using hi- combining hydrogen-oxygen back into water to make electricity. Okay. Same as the, the space shuttle. Space shuttle didn't carry solar panels. It used fuel cells. Yeah. So there are different ways to generate power. It's just a question of how long. Yep. And solar cells have the advantage of lasting for a long time. Sure do. And you can just keep building them because space is pretty much big enough to hold big solar panel arrays. Absolutely. Although they do take wear and tear. Yeah. I'm reading a lot about geostationary orbit because that's invariably a component of space-based power. And... So just all of the knowledge they have today around the the largest satellites in the world, short of the space station, are these geostationary orbit 
communication satellites, and they have all kinds of interesting problems, including solar panels decay in efficiency at a rate of about 2% per year. They also get ruptured by space junk once in a while, don't they? If they get hit, they're pretty much screwed. Yeah. Because the energy levels are so high, that's the end of it. But they don't get hit very often. It's, it's rare. Okay. And... Um, yeah, it is sort of a small target in the yes. big uh, confines of space, but there's lots of junk out there. There is a fair bit of junk. And and the spa- for me, a lot of this research I did spend on the space station because the space station is the largest object we've ever flown. Right. And believe me, when you, we start doing the numbers here, you're going to find out space space power is really big, really, really big. <laughs> and uh, And so that presents interesting problems around collision and so forth. So where should we start? Um, for, for, well, first off, let's just talk about solar power in general, the, the pluses and minuses around it, okay? Okay, sure. So if you're going to put a solar panel down on the ground, the maximum amount of power that you could generate out of a solar panel, so let's talk about optimal conditions on the surface. Okay. Would be at noon, on the equator, perfectly clear day. Right. Right. Because as soon as it's earlier or later, you got a little more sun angle, which decreases energy. Uh, if you're off the equator, you've got more atmosphere to go through. Right. If there's any clouds, all these things diminish the amount of power. Absolutely optimal. And this is the total sunlight that hits the surface energy-wise. Not how much you can collect, the total that's available. It's a 1,000 watts per square meter. Wow. That's it. Now, wait a minute. Over what period of time? That's at any given instant. Oh. So if you collected... If you collect it for an hour, you have a kilowatt hour. Of course, you not it's not noon for an hour, so that doesn't work. I see. Okay. Per square meter, a per thousand square, watts. That's it. And then that now seems talk, like a lot though. It, well, now you get into the reality of solar cells, which is they run fifteen to twenty five percent efficient. Uh right? Yeah. So now a reality is to you know, a good solar panel will get you two hundred watts in a square meter. Got it. Right? But that's how much actually hits the planet. That's a so lot. That's a, it's a fair bit. How much more would you think there is in space around the Earth? Yeah. Distance would, to the sun matters. I would think there's a lot more because it, you don't have to go through the atmosphere. It's not as much as you think. Really? It's 1,368 watts per square meter. Really? Yep. It's a little less, little 40% more. That's all. Wow. And it's part of the problem here is... You, if to collect a substantial amount of power, to collect a power plant caliber amount of electricity, you need to cover a lot of square meters in space. Which isn't as much of a problem as it is on the Earth, right? Well, it, you trade one problem for another. There's more space, yes, but you got to get there. That's hard. Yeah, that's true. Well, and the other issue you've got to deal with is the Earth keeps getting in the way. Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. Right? So how do you have electricity all of the time? It's got to be far enough away from the Earth so that the Earth doesn't cast a shadow. To some degree, yes. I mean, that's that's part of it. So plus you have to, you know, there's sort of six things uh, in understanding space-based power that are the problems around space-based power. So why don't we just sort of run down the six things? Sure. So first is, can you wirelessly transmit power? Uh, Immediately thinking microwave. Yeah. There's really only two techniques laser, and microwave. They're really the same technique. It's just a frequency issue. Okay. Right? And lasers can can go further or, or less far than microwaves? La- well, there's there's distance and and, and uh, dispersal right. effects and so forth. So and lasers, loss. because they're substantially higher frequency, yep. 
have less dispersion. They can go further. However, they are more affected by the atmosphere because they're visible light. It's just like sunlight. That's about a 30 to 40 percent effect in optimal conditions. Now, we're just to back up a little bit. Are we talking about all space-based power? Or are we looking at it with an eye toward we want to get this stuff down on the Earth? Well, that's an interesting question, and we'll go elsewhere. But let's focus first on generating power for the Earth. Because okay. theoretically, this is the greenest power you could imagine. Sure. Right? Because sure. now you're, you're not burning anything on the planet. You're not consuming anything on the planet other than what you initially put up there. Yeah. It generates electricity for decades. I wouldn't say forever, but for decades. So my my thought, and I've talked to you about this, was to have your uh, solar array or whatever collecting data and beaming it down with microwaves that was in, in your array being in geosynchronous orbit. So the yep. Earth is never in the shadow of the sun. Or I don't know if it's it can't ever be, but somehow manipulating the orbit so that it's not in the shadow. Well, and yeah, and you, you're worried about the right thing because there will be times when you're in the shadow. Okay. Even in geostationary orbit. So the normal space-based power plans, and these plans first really, I mean, people talked about it for a long time, but NASA's first serious document of here's you, how you do space-based power came out in 1979. Okay. And it's relevant to think about why it came out then, because that's when the shuttle was under serious development. And the main thing they were focused on with the shuttle, that's original promise, was driving down the cost of space. It was also uh, coming off of the energy crisis in the yeah, United States. Your you're, you're post-oil crisis, yeah. you're building this cool new machine that's going to fly 50 times a year mm -hmm. and drive down the price of... Uh, and every time I read any document about space space power, they're talking about, all we need is $500 a kilogram yeah. and we'll be fine. So... Geostationary space is a long way away. It's 22,300 miles, about 36,000 kilometers. Okay. Okay. And the reason for that location is that at orbital velocity, it will hover essentially over a single spot. Right. And microwaves are your best choice for transmitting power. If you build a, uh, and it just depends on the quality of your microwave transmitter. And we've gotten better at this. Okay. But in 1979, they were still using very mechanical microwave transmitters. So they were talking about it's about a 30% loss, but immune to weather yep. to go down to the planetary surface, and it's about a 10 times dispersal. And um, also, there's a danger element, isn't there, about well, getting too close to it? If you're at the transmitter side, yes. If you're at the receiver side, no. Okay. So the dispersion rate's about 10 to 1. So you build a one kilometer wide transmitter, and that's what they were talking about in 1979. Yeah. You need a 10 kilometer wide receiver, which is a big. Yeah. But at that point, the power density of that beam is only about a thousand watts per square meter again. Interesting. But it's, but it's consistent all of the time across the whole thing. So it's above the radiation levels that you should expose yourself to, although it is not at ionizing caliber. You could wear protective clothing to protect yourself from walking in it. They would probably fence off the receiver area. In fact, it would almost certainly fence off the receiver to, area. Yeah. But it's not going to fry birds in flight. Well, that's good. And, you know, getting back to this 1000 watts per meter, that seems like it's just on par with solar panels. So no. Remember, solar panels are only collecting at 20, 30% efficiency. We can right. beam microwaves at that time at about 70% efficiency, and it's consistent all the time. 1,000 watts per meter is what lands in absolute optimal conditions. I see. And this would be 1,000 watts per meter 
almost all of the time. And I say almost because of eclipse season. All right. So when now the sun, the, the Earth orbits the sun, but not in a perfect circle. It's an ellipsoid. So there's a plus or minus of about 8% all year round. Mm-hmm. They can get a, a down as low as like 93, 94% and up over 102% based on the averages. Okay. And there are two eclipse seasons a year anywhere around the, the geostationary orbit point. They roughly start at midnight, which makes sense when it's the dark side, when you're on the dark side at certain times of the year. And it runs about 45 days each between the end of February and the middle of March and between the end of August and the middle of October. And this is literally an eclipse. The Earth gets between the satellite and the sun. And so it starts, that eclipse starts in the beginning of those periods at about two-minute blockages. The peak, which is right when the sun is at the equator level, so on the perfect equinox, um, is 72 minutes. All right. I want to get back to this idea of how much power we can beam down, because it seems to me it's not as much as you'd think it would be. Am I wrong? I mean, a 1,000 watts per meter is the amount uh, you said is that the amount that the uh of sunlight power that is potential that well that's what's potential on when we're talking about on the ground we're talking about on the ground right, right. so if it's a thousand watts per meter it doesn't matter how, how much power you're pumping down from your solar panels in space well that measurement was based on a generation of a gigawatt of power which was about the limit of what they could generate out of a, a space satellite in 1979. All right. So All right. what do the numbers look like today? Well, let's get there. All right. Right. I okay. still want to deal with the geostationary problem because this is a non-trivial issue. You can't count on the power all the time. Right. Now, granted, it would always be at night the outages would run. The worst case scenario, like I said, is just over an hour. So, you know, roughly around midnight till 1.15 a.m. Yeah. Twice a year, that thing's got no power. Let's just blow up the moon. Yeah, no, I'm just kidding. It's it, it's the Earth that's in the way, not the Moon. <laughs> oh well, we'll blow up the Earth. It obstructs our view of Venus anyway. Yeah. We're we're still orbiting well inside the Moon at this point. Okay. The Moon's an interesting conversation all by itself. All right. So, I mean, really, if you wanted to count on this power 100 percent of the time, you need to build at least two of these. I see. And they need to be separated to a certain degree. I see. And there is some aiming potential there, one way or the other. Now, that's only the first, you know, six disciplines. Yeah. First is wireless power transmission. Right. Next problem is space transportation. How much does it cost to lift it? How granular is the device? How much can we break it down so that we can lift it in cost-effective chunks? Right. And we we could talk about that all day long. I have all the numbers. Okay. <laughs> we need to build large structures. How large is large? In 1979, the original SPS reference design was 10 kilometers by 5 kilometers to collect a gigawatt of power. How big is the space station by reference, uh, by comparison? Uh, about 150 meters square. Okay, so it's much bigger than anything we've ever, ever, ever By built. a long way. This is massive, but much simpler in some way respects than the space station because right. it's repeating. It's busy work. Well, it's repeating work in order to collect enough power to make this worthwhile. Got it. I mean, I, I've, I've looked at the space station's power system extensively to look at this because when we talk about power in space, this is the most electricity we've ever put into space. Right. Right now, if you remember the space station, we have these eight big wings, right? These big solar panels mm-hmm. on them. Each one of them's about, uh, 21, each, each one of them's about 10 kilowatts each. Eight of them together is about 80 kilowatts. Okay. They're 35 meters long, 12 meters wide. 
Okay. Each, each one of them weighs about a metric ton. Wow. Okay. They're not light. All right. But that's not all. In order to follow, because it's in, it needs to follow the sun, right? Sure. Even when you're in geostationary orbit, you still need to follow the sun. You are going around the planet, right? You're orb- rotating with the planet. Mm-hmm. So you have to keep, you, sometimes the sun's going to be in front of you and the planet's going to be in front of you. And, and you need part of your space, part of this vehicle has to point at the earth all the time, now, right? What if you were above a pole, a north pole or a south pole, you wouldn't have to be in geosynchronous orbit, would you? You can't hover over the pole. You no. have to orbit. So you're always moving. I see. Right. The only time that we can relatively sit in one place over a planet is in geostationary orbit. There are some Got interesting it. exceptions, relatively speaking. It's like, for example, there's a thing called a tundra orbit. And a tundra orbit's a highly eccentric orbit that effectively over the ground would move in a figure eight over um, something continent size. The, um, the Sirius XM satellites, mm-hmm. there's three of them. Okay. Orbit over North America in a tundra orbit. So they sort of draw a figure eight over North America all of the time. Uh-huh. But when they're at the farthest point of their eccentric orbit, they're too far out for you to receive signals. Hmm. So they're spaced so that always one of them is in range enough that you can send the signal and receive it. I see. You follow me? Yep. And that's so, sort of what we have to do with this as well. Well, if we, that also still has eclipsing times, but on normal satellites, they just have batteries. Right. Right. So that when they're eclipsed, they just, they have their batteries to bridge through that time. Yeah. I'd like to see that battery. For- yeah. <laughs> well, and it's part of the challenge of the space station, right? Is the space station spends 45 minutes in the light, 45 minutes in the shade. Mm. So in studying this to figure out, you know, how heavy is a, a solar panel? I looked at the, the detailed specifications on the P3, P4 truss unit. Mm-hmm. So this is uh, a chunk of truss with two of the solar panels, the charging equipment, the pointing equipment, and and, a, and the cooling equipment. Everything needed to run essentially 20 kilowatts of power. Wow. Total mass, 16,000 kilograms. Wow. Now, man, this was not built necessarily for lightness. It fit into the space station. The bulk of that mass... Of 16,000 kilograms, 12,000 of it, batteries. Because they need to provide power for the space station, right? All right. So that's obviously a huge problem. Well, so let's get rid of the battery problem. Like, I was just trying to figure out, because everybody's using funny numbers when you try and figure out how much space-based power is actually going to cost. Yeah. So I was thinking, let's get a real number. Let's take the weight and cost of the space station solar arrays and build something from that. Okay. okay. So, 1,000 kilograms for one of those panels. We'll take a pair, because they come in pairs. There's 2,000 kilograms. Mm-hmm. Then you need the alpha gimbals. So, the alpha gimbals are the rotors that allow you to point that big solar panel at the sun all the time. Right. Okay. The tricky part with that is, remember, you're conducting a lot of electricity through that gimbal while you're rotating it. Right. So you don't want it to short out, and you don't want to break the wire. That would be bad. So you have to have some sort of um, wireless, not wireless, but, you know, yeah, you wireless f- contact, right? You don't want it. You need a flexible contact. Flexible needs, contact. Yeah, they call it a key ring contact. So there's an alpha gimbal. There's also a beta gimbal, right? The beta gimbal rotates the uh, the actual ray, array to deal with changes in angle as you're going around the orbit. Okay. All right. Then you need a cooler. Now, 
And part of the re- reason you need a cooler is you're taking that electricity and you're charging batteries with it. And that generates a lot of heat. So you don't need as much cooler if you're not going to charge batteries with it. Mm-hmm. But you're still talking about the weight for the cooler. So structure, power handling, gimbals, solar arrays. You come out at something roughly around 4,000 kilograms for 20 watts of power. All right, now that's weight. How much does it cost to build those things? Dude, the cost of construction is so low compared to the cost of lift, it almost doesn't matter. So you really need to construct them in space is what you're saying. No, we're not there yet. That's a whole other set of problems. But let's just run down the numbers, right? All right. So I'm getting to about two metric tons or 2,000 kilograms for 10 kilowatts of power. Follow me? Yeah. Yeah, I I follow you. So if we went a gigawatt of power then in that form factor is 200,000 metric tons. Oh, my God. Right? How do we ever get that up there? Well, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We can launch rockets every day for now until the end of time and not get that up there. Well, consider that the best lift we almost have right now, Most we actually talk about the lift side of this. Most of our current generation spacecraft, Ariane 5s, Delta 4s, uh, Atlas 5 series, they're all around 10,000 kilograms lift or 10 metric tons. Yeah. Right. And that's just a geo's transfer orbit, which is a whole other set of problems. Right. Suddenly I'm bearish on space based power. It's you, you remember where I was talking. <laughs> this is hard. <laughs> to get to geostationary orbit is not like low Earth orbit. You yeah. just don't fly your rocket there. Yeah. You have to fly to a geo transfer orbit first, which is sort of three quarters of the way there. You've gotten out of the atmosphere and you're in a, and now the rocket's pretty much used up. You now have to have thrust on your satellite to finish the transfer. Mm. And so using conventional rockets, Ariane, Atlas, Delta, the typical estimate today is $50,000 per kilogram to geostationary orbit. Yeah. SpaceX, their Falcon 9 is optimized for LEO, but they low Earth orbit, but they have done some geo flights. The latest one was AsiaSat 6, mm-hmm. and they lift about 5,000 kilos to geotransfer orbit for about 12,500 a kilo. Oh. They're half price. Wow. So if you if you go with a 25,000 and in their next generation rocket, and I hate talking about future stuff that doesn't exist right, yet, right? But the heavy, which is being tested right now, is supposed to be twenty thousand kilos or twenty metric tons to geotransfer orbit. Huh. Okay. All right. At maybe half the price of what everybody else can do it at so far. So putting all these things into the spreadsheet, what's the what's the any kind of practical rate? If we were going to put a gigawatt of Space station solar panels into orbit with their aiming gear, $10 trillion. Oh, my God. For one gigawatt. Yeah. All right. Now, again, these are, I won't call them back of the napkin numbers, but they are me trying to extract the best values out. You can understand if we can shave just a little bit of weight here and there, it starts to make a lot of difference. You understand that in the end, I just, that's the number for lift. Yeah. It's lift, guys. The lift is always the problem. So that gets us back to our mining show. We talked about mining uh, stuff from asteroids and putting things together in space. Are we going to talk about that today? We could talk about it a little, but there's almost nothing to say. Uh-huh. Many of the materials that we need in astero- in for solar panels and things, a lot of it can't come from asteroids. It's not there. Wow. 
then this is very, you know, we were talking about coarse construction. This is very refined construction to be able to make things like solar panels and so forth. But there are, the bigger thing here would be to spend the money reducing the cost of lift. I and see. we can talk about some of the options there, but I want to run through how, you know, I've only talked about a 30-year-old uh, space platform design. Sure. There are a bunch of newer designs. Okay. Well, before we do that, Richard, you know what time it is? Must be that happy time again. Yep. Time to sell all my stock in Joe's discount spacepowersolarpanels.com. <laughs> It'll get better, I promise. <laughs> oh, God, I hope so. I'm just giving you the bad news. I'm trying to swear. <laughs> Actually, it's time to give away a D-Experience subscription to one lucky member of our .NET Rocks fan club. But first, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation, touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com superhero. All right, buddy. Who's our winner? Today's winner, Richard, is Alan Creekshanks. Congratulations, Alan. Yeah. Golf clap for you, sir. Golf clap for Alan. He just won the D-Experience subscription from Developer Express, a big pile of awesome. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .net Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world, and every show we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away $5,000 in a shopping spree to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club, but you got to join to win. Absolutely. That's it. So go do it. Go to it. We'll do it. We really do do that. We've done it three times. Richard, I need some good news. Uh, well... You just understand this, the, the, the lift problem is the cornerstone problem we're going to have to get better. It sure is, yeah. And it, obviously, it, if it takes more to lift it, you have to amortize how much you're going to make back in power and figure out how many years we have to run that thing before we get our money back. Well, and you, and you never will, realistically, because it'll break down. Yeah. Before, before you actually earn out. We generate electricity by burning stuff really cheaply. Yeah. You know, at, because we're not assessing the true cost, which is the damage to the environment, the disruption of uh, of infrastructure. Like that, that's the the effects of climate change. Those are much harder things to account. Those for. are the real problems. Yeah. And I and I do want to talk about the money side of this further on because okay. I, I think ultimately the military will drive this forward, which may not make people happy, but in the end, if you really look at it, most research ends up being done by the military. I, a couple of times now I've talked about six things you need to understand around space-based power. We talked about wireless transmission, this transportation problem. Now that you know the, 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 the satellites are that big, construction's a big deal. You're going to have to fly this in potentially thousands of flights. How do you put it together? Right. And, and the way we put the space station together just doesn't scale, right? You're going to have to automate. Now, back in, you know, in 79, they weren't insane. They thought the shuttle was going to fly so oh, yeah, much. They this were. was practical. They were insane. Don't let anybody tell you differently. <laughs> but they, you know, they believed that they were going to be able to fly every week. And so they were going to, that was going to get the pro cost of flight down. Right. Assembly wasn't going to be a big deal. This was the truck in space. And so the fact that it was going to take hundreds of flights to assemble this thing was okay. And bazillions of dollars. Well, it wasn't going to cost that much, right? The space, the shuttle never, hit its cost goals not even close yeah uh, and so 
manual construction is just sort of off the window. We have to figure out how to build these big structures in a more efficient way. Mm. The other side problem here is once you build something that big, you can't move it. Right. And you have, and you've got conflicting goals. One part of the satellite has to be well aimed at the earth all of the time. Right. And the other part has to keep following the sun. Does it make sense rather than building one gigantic array to have multiple smaller arrays that are strategically located around the earth? Um, not necessarily around the Earth, but you're on to something here. We need to make it more granular and simple. Mm. And we were talking about a monolith back then. Right. Uh, same problem when you talk about solar panel efficiency. Uh, you can increase efficiency by using reflectors, but then you ha- you generate more heat, and heat management becomes a huge problem. Yeah. Uh, and you there's also a trick with, if you want, especially when you have moving parts, if you're moving high-voltage electricity around, it can cause shorts and, and damage. So power management is a hard problem. So those are the six things. Power transmission, space transportation, construction, uh, attitude and orbital control, generate power generation and management. Well, it seems like solar energy is the winner here. I mean, in terms of cost, because you know you're 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 getting more power, but not enough to justify those costs. Well, the trick is you've got to shed as much weight as you can, and hopefully do simpler construction systems. That it will, you know, again, this the, the SBS, the reference design was a rigid structure, sort of built all at once. Nothing works till it's finished. You got to break it up. So have you right. adjusted your spreadsheet for today's costs? Well, Leah, let's work our way through it because right. we have built, we've come up with better designs. Um, one of the later designs following that one was a system called Solar Disk. And there's several versions of this. There's also the Sun Tower and the European Sail Tower, where instead of having one rigid monolith, you have a longer craft where the bottom part is the transmitter mm-hmm. and then you have these sails or disks, basically smaller ch- chunks. And when I say smaller, I mean only a couple of kilometers across. Okay. Uh, that actually collect the cells and maybe they're thin film ones like the space station uses and they're round so that they're, and they're balanced so that they, they're not as hard to maneuver. We work on both sides so they don't have to move as much. And one of the things they discovered is they started working on, they were talking about these space stations then, or these, these spacecraft being several kilometers long and the one end being the transmitter. So it's pointed towards the ground. You start getting into this thing called gravity gradient. Mm-hmm. So, and the, the point being, once you get into kilometers of length, the bottom half is actually pulled on harder than the upper part. Yeah. And so it tends to keep itself pointing. So you do less energy use and stabilization or fighting to move the vehicle around. It'll maintain its own tension. And that was an important discovery. Yeah. Then when you get into more modern technology, you get away what they call the Klystron method of generating microwaves, which is basically like a vacuum tube. You get into these electronic microwave systems. And this is important because, and again, largely driven by the military. Modern radars today, we talk about planes like the F-22. It actually started back with the Aegeus cruisers. Hmm. They have these electronically steerable microwave systems. So there's, they now, what they've done is instead of having one big energy generator, you have a whole bunch of little ones and you can point them very accurately. And that makes them lighter Hmm. and they can be more focused. So suddenly they go from, needing to be a kilometer cross beaming onto the ground at 10 kilometers across for a gigawatt of power to something that's a couple of hundred meters across and lands in a, in a kilometer. Yeah. Because it's much more aimable. Mm-hmm. There's also a design, and this is much more recent, called the modular symmetrical sandwich. So what if 
we have a solar panel on one side of the device and the microwave transmitter on the other side. And uh, you use reflectors so that you can maneuver the reflectors to keep the solar cell fully uh, in the light. Huh. The solar and the uh, microwaves are always transmitting the same direction. Well, that's interesting. The folks that are pushing on this the hardest, believe it or not, are the Japanese. Hmm. So, and most, there's not a lot of money spent. There's tens of millions of dollars being spent on space-based power. Really? And in the world of space, that's pennies. Yeah. But after the big earthquake uh, in and the incident with Fukushima in right. Japan, they got a bunch more funding. Yeah, good. You know, they're because the Japanese are motivated. It's like, well, we need some solutions to power problems here. And so they've actually been driving on it. And it's been largely Japanese scientists that have worked on the, the modular symmetrical sandwich. Their big system now, which they are actually on path to fly test units of, would have this sandwich approach. So you have the microwaves on the bottom, you have the solar panels on the top, and then you have a couple of free floating mirrors on either side of it that the mirrors themselves do the sunlight collection and focus it onto the solar panels. You're not necessarily trying to increase the total amount of light per square meter a whole lot, because as soon as you do, you start having heat problems. Mm -hmm. But you're minimizing weight. Capton mirrors, these really thin film mirrors, are light, so they're easier to maneuver. Mm. And so the size is substantially smaller. And... Uh, you don't have to have all the mirrors pointing all of the time, so you don't have to do more radical maneuvers. You do the simpler maneuvers. And now you're talking about a transmitter a kilometer across with a receiver three kilometers across, pulling down about a gigawatt of power. It's a, it's a pretty interesting design. So but you're the, saying these would each have microwave receivers on them? Try, it's all transmitters. Yeah, okay. Right? You're just trying to get it to the ground. But there's, but, and you've got the mirrors, so imagine you've got a disc. Mm -hmm. One side is covered in solar panels. The other side is covered in, in microwave transmitters. Then you've got these big mirrors aiming light down at that solar panel and the mirrors I do gotcha. the aiming and the and the heavy part doesn't move i see but i would argue the most important thing the japanese figured out was a thing called retro directive beam control sounds important it's clever what it is is a signal sent from the ground to help the uh the transmitters know exactly where to aim huh so right in the middle of the receiver is a little beam being fired up at the satellite and all of the different individual transmitters, because there's a whole bunch of little ones now, mm -hmm. all know exactly where to point so they can concentrate the beam to keep it closer together. Oh, that's nice. Now, yeah, isn't it, why does that have to come from Earth? Why can't they just figure that out? They can come within, from any transmitter, right? But the whole thing here is you want the receiver to send a signal to the transmitter to tell the transmitter where to beam. Okay. And here's the thing to think about that might be interesting in that. If I could do that, what if that receiver was in motion? Ah, I see. So now you have something that can move and go to play, you know, like your military option that you talked about before on we'll, the show. So like you bring the power where, where it needs to be. To some degree, we can only move it so far, but there is some possibilities there. And I don't want to, let's not get there just yet. All let's right. Keep going. But you follow me. The <laughs> retroactive beam control is super important. All right. Long term. I'll tell you how serious the Japanese are. The JAXA, that's the, that is Japan's NASA, has been testing the retroactive system. They've actually operated it. They built a test system with four half-meter panels totaling 400 watts for a total of 1.6 kilowatts and transmitted about a net of about 350 watts worth of power self-aimed 
all the power management systems working, all the phase control. So nothing to do with space, just transmitting PowerPoint to point. Wow. But with a lot of that stuff working. Their intent is to put a 100-kilowatt test platform into orbit by 2020. And we keep thinking 2020 is a long way away. No. That's five years from now, kids. Yeah, and how do they get around all these problems that you outlined in the beginning of the show? By using this lighter weight design. So how much lighter is it? And and if I put it in comparison with how much it uh, costs, give us a dollar amount and a percentage difference. Well, the problem is that you have to guess. Yeah. None of the numbers are real. I see. Right? So the solar panel weight, maybe we can cut it in half, right? We really can't do more than that. But we're still talking trillions of dollars. No, billions. Because okay. they're dropping the weight. They're also going to a 100 kilowatt project, okay. right? Not a gigawatt, not a megawatt, a calendar kilowatts. That's only a little more than the total space station, right? right? When they're, so their 100 kilowatt test project should be a few billion at most okay. by 2020. Because right. you're really talking about 10 of the space station sized panels. Right. Right? And a transmitter. Okay. But then, you know, as soon as you want to go up from there, then they want to go from there to two megawatts. Sure. Which is 20 times larger. Now it's 200. Right. So you get into scaling problems pretty quickly. You've got to come up with a better solar panel design. Which leads me to, and I may, I am skipping a bunch of other designs, but let me talk about, I think, the most innovative design at all, which is this one called SPS Alpha. Space-Based Power System, SPS. SPS. Alpha. And Alpha is an acronym as well, but it's a ridiculous acronym for this arbitrarily large structure. Okay. So here's the brilliant part about this design. It uses hexagons called hex buses nice. that are roughly four meters in di diameter each. Okay. And this is a completely, everything that I talk about in this assembly all fits in these four meter chunks. Nice. Now, why four meters? The largest spacecraft we're flying today have five meter payload shrouds. Uh. So four meters will fit into existing designs. Each one of these panels would only be 25 centimeters thick, less than a foot. Nice. So you're talking about 12 feet across, less than a foot, foot high, and each one of them, sh nothing should weigh over 500 kilograms or over 1,000 pounds per panel. Now, there's going to be a lot of panels, but you've got a very granular design. It seems pretty heavy for a solar panel, doesn't it? It's not just a solar panel. It's all the other pieces. Oh, it's a microwave transmitter as well. Well, that's the thing is that you're using a standard hex bus design, but you're making different modules with it. So... SPS Alpha leans on the, the JAXA system in the sense that the most expensive, heaviest part will be the thing they call the primary array assemblies. And the primary array assemblies will have that same concept of wireless power on one side mm. and solar collectors on the other side. Got it. And, they're, and they're, they think they can get them around to about 200 kilograms each. Mm. But if they're only four meters across, you need 250 of them to make a one kilometer square hex. Yeah. And that's still... Like 25 metric tons. That's heavy. Yeah. But it's not outrageous. And it's granular. You could start with a smaller unit. Right. What's clever about their design is rather than having those free-floating mirror systems, mm -hmm. which where they sound cool are tricky as hell to use, mm -hmm. they're talking about using that same hex design using robotic self-assembly to assemble into a reflective structure that will be gravity gradient, so it'll be naturally stable, not moving, monolithic, it'll stay in place, and just have mirrors that open and close to reflect the light. So now you place games with the shape. How do you collect the most light to reflect down to that fixed panel at the bottom? And the shapes, when you look at them, look like cocktail glasses. Hmm. 
So the bottom of the glass is always, that's the transmitter. There's always a stem of the glass that's just cables running up to the reflector array. Okay. And there are really two designs, and they both look like cocktail glasses. Mm. One looks like a wide mouth champagne glass, a sort of a big ellipsoid. Okay. The other one looks like a margarita glass. Huh. They call it a sigmoid, so sort of a narrower cone opening up into a larger cone. Like a martini glass, almost. Yeah, but not straight-sided, curved. Okay. Right? So, it's it's, yeah, it's very, glass. Yep. very organic looking, to be honest. But the reason is that the mirrors get out of each other's way, and you don't have to move them. As, the, as your position to the sun changes, there are always enough mirrors at the right angle to reflect enough light down to the transmitter. Very cool. And the mirror assemblies would be substantially lighter, maybe a quarter of the weight of the power collector transmitter assemblies. Okay. And the focus is on using self-assembly for these approaches. So they're, they're deriving a lot. A lot of this is in what they call technical readiness level four. Like it's derived technology that already exists. Mm. So take, imagine an arm like the Canada arm from the space station, but make it small. Like it's a snake-like robot with articulated joints so that it can move around and it can actually help attach these different hexes. And you can add more hexes, remove them. You can change their shape and location. The hexes in some ways are like CubeSats. Inside structures have additional electronics, power, and so on. Yep. So that they're, you can largely do a lot of self-assembly, some mobility to them, and transmit the power. There's a bit of voodoo in this still. Yeah. But it's not outrageous. Okay. You know, it's going to have to solve a certain number of problems, but it could be done. But you know what makes me hopeful is that if we can get that far with that much motivation in so such little time, then, you know, maybe 10, 20 years down the road, we'll find something that a, a real breakthrough in, in uh, weight and uh, assembly. Yep. How much, if we're going to mass, the nice thing with this thing is because you're using the same design over and over again, all these hexes, you can manufacture those things cheaply and you can refine the design. They're not one offs. You're going to make a ton of them. So you're going to get better at it. And that's going to make a huge difference in cost. Uh, it's lots of repeatability. And what about the weight though? I mean, what, how, how do we get the continue to get the weight down? Well, it's using, you know, do we go to carbon nanotube? Right. Right. It, uh, we, you're already doing thin fill capton. Like, there's lots of ways to shave a little more weight off. Mm. Is there pieces of this we could manufacture in space? It's, it's an interesting question. Right. I want to talk about two other variations that folks will often bring up, and then we'll try and talk about how we could actually get this built All in right. the time we have left. What about, people talk about this, generate power on the moon? Yes. Do your manufacturing on the moon? The moon, one moon face always ports towards the earth all of the time, right? Yeah. So it's naturally geostationary. Yeah. Uh, you, two problems. First is the moon's not always lit. Solar eclipse, too, is a problem. Yeah. Well, it's not just eclipses. It's all a month wrong, right? Now, yeah. They may have the same face showing, but you don't always sunlight on it. So you're going to need a reflector mm. orbiting the moon to keep those solar panels charged. Got it. And that's tricky. The second is it's 10 times further away. Geostationary orbit is 36,000 kilometers. The moon's n roughly around 384,000 kilometers away. And that means you need to generate 10 more times power to receive the same amount of power back on I the planet. See. So, and yeah, you're going to deal with eclipses and other problems, but... But are there minerals and things on the moon that can be mined? Yes, absolutely. It would help to be on a grounded surface with a little bit of gravity. We know more about the manufacturing, but it's a lot more power. Well, what about, here Here you go, how about a manufacturing plant on the moon that launches the satellites from there uh, with a lot less cost because yes. of the gr lot l less gravity? 
You're exactly right. Lower gravity, no atmosphere. Right. So you can, you can accelerate it right from the surface. Yep. There's a few options there. But you're still going to need some stuff manufactured on the moon, some stuff manufactured on the planet. The moon's rich in certain minerals, particularly right. aluminum, but uh, not rich in other ones. So it's going to be hard to get the mining you need. Yeah. So, but, but it's, you know, it, what's cool is that we can just shoot a rocket to the moon that has the, the critical earthbound chemicals or, or, you know, substances or whatever it is. And then, you know, that can be received at the moon, you know, sort of like a, a Federal Express. Yeah, yeah, but it's still going to cost money to get it. It oh, costs sure. more to get stuff to the moon than it does to get it to Geo. Well, that's true. So there's a balance there. But uh, yeah, um, it depends on on how you break it down. Yeah. yeah. And what you can make where, right? right? And, and we are talking about, again, technologies we haven't developed. Yeah, yeah. But it's easier to have a little bit of gravity than no gravity. Yep. Um, one other position, people are like, let's get rid of the eclipses, the movement, all of those problems. Let's go to sun libration points. Sun for, libration points. So these are points where the gravity of the sun and the gravity of the earth balance each other. So you can pretty much put a spacecraft there and it'll just sit there. Oh, wow. And it will never be eclipsed and it doesn't need to move around. Don't blow on it, though. It might move out. <laughs> well, and a, we, we talked about this with the James Webb Space Telescope because they're going to put one in the libration point there. It still moves a bit. Yeah. There's still some work to be done to stay in that orbit. It's not for free. Right. But a couple of things that are easy. One is because you're not rotating it, the sun isn't changing location all the time mm -hmm. on you, mm -hmm. you have a very cold side of the vehicle mm -hmm. and a very warm side of the vehicle, mm -hmm. which actually makes heat management easier. Oh, yeah. Sure it does. Right? Yeah. And you don't have eclipse problems. You don't have a lot of that maneuverability problems. The problem is distance. Yeah. It's 1.5 kilometers away for L2, and that's 40 times further than... Um, uh, geostationary, which means way more solar panels, 40 times more. Huh. It's just not cost effective. All right. Like, not that any of this has been cost effective so far. And even with lasers or something, you wouldn't, or, or I don't know. No, I'm yeah, laser transmitters would be better to a relay closer in to use microwaves to go through the atmosphere. Yeah. And, you know, we were talking about the the Mars missions where we would build space drafts in space and accelerate them with a laser. Mm. That would be where you'd put that laser to do that acceleration. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And make that, that would make a lot of sense. Killing three birds with one stone, Richard. That's the way Something we roll. Something like that. And you <laughs> put a bunch of them up there. But Just ask right. me, folks. I know everything. We make some solar panels on the moon. We fly them up to L2. We beam a laser to move the power around. And I, and that's, you know, it's interesting to say not just creating power to make electricity to run your home, mm. but also use that when you start talking about thermal rockets. Mm -hmm. So I use that laser to heat fuel, right? That, that then accelerates out the back of the engine. I don't have to use chemical combustion. I get dramatically higher performance motors. So what are the downsides to that? Um, there isn't a lot, except you have to build that engine. Yeah. That's an expensive engine to build. Right. Lasers are hard to make really powerful, mm. and it costs money to do that. Mm -hmm. But it does get around a lot of these other problems, though, doesn't it? It does address a ton of them. So here's where I think the military will probably build it first. I was doing the math to figure out how much NATO consumed in gasoline in Afghanistan. Right. Want to guess? We talked about this before, and it was some ridiculous number. 600,000 gallons a day. Ah, and they have to truck it in because there's it's a landlocked nation, which is right? a little ironic, isn't it? It is something, isn't yeah. it? So they burn about thirty thousand gallons a day to move three hundred thousand gallons a day using eight convoys of about sixty trucks each. Yeah, plus breakdowns, maintenance, you know, and it's just a lot. And if you could cut that gas, so now you get into this idea of when you do the math, right? At three bucks a gallon. 
Mm. For 600,000 gallons, this is, you know, $1.8 million a day in gas. $1.8 million. Million dollars. dollars. In gas alone, right? So now, and that's every day. You start to see why the U.S. Naval Research uh, Laboratory is researching space-based power. The Army is researching space-based power. And one of the reasons they're thinking about is, could they build, say, one of these hexagonal-style systems that they could assemble, put up there, and beam power into a given location. Mm. And the problem is that it's not easy to relocate them. So you can't build one and just put it anywhere you want. Mm-hmm. Although with the HEX system, with the SPS Alpha design, in theory, you could have it unassemble itself back into collections of stacked hexes that would make it a lot easier to move mm-hmm. and then reassemble itself again somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Although, again, shifting geostationary orbit, way more difficult than you'd think. Mm. It's a long way. Well, that's some good news, Richard. Uh, we ought to revisit this in a few years and see how much progress they've made. Well, and it's interesting when you when I go and look at the research papers, that's exactly what NASA has done. About every 10 or so years, they do a study and figure out what the new technology will do for them and then show that the cost of lift is still too high and end it. And then they wait and they do it again. It's certainly worth watching. Until, yeah, our best cost of lift right now is still SpaceX at about $12,500 Per kilogram. Yeah. When it's $1,000 a kilogram, which is 10 times a drop, yeah, this becomes a heck of a lot more viable. And it's only going to go down from there, I hope. Well, we would hope. We would it's hope. A, it, is an, it is still voodoo to get down from there. Yeah. But I, I mean, I like that Elon Musk is on the problem, yeah. uh, but we still have a long ways to go. Richard, it's always, always amazing talking to you about this stuff. About anything, really. <laughs> Thank you, buddy. Well, it's been a, a ton of research. I, I got sadder as I worked further into this because the, uh, the lift is the problem. Yeah, it sure is. Uh, I shouldn't have had that pizza. <laughs> nice. <laughs> All right. Uh, folks, if you like this, please let us know. Uh, if you're concerned about anything, we'll take any question you want. Just write it on the show itself. If you want to hear other geek outs, we've got the link there to the Google moderator site and uh, vote on your favorite topics suggest any others that we're missing we will do one of these every month until something changes and uh that's a lot of shows absolutely all right talk to you later richard and we'll see you next time on dotnet rocks .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in september 2002 and make sure you check out our sponsors they keep us in business now go write some code see you next time got a transmitter band by the fcc